National Archives podcast series, Making Geographical Sense of the Census, an introduction to a vision of Britain through time, presented by Dr Humphrey Southall. Well, I'm Humphrey Southall from the University of Portsmouth, and I'm a geographer. And that is to say I'm not a genealogist. And as will probably become clear, when I think of the census, firstly, well, what makes me perhaps weird is I have some practical interest in every census from 1801 to 2011. I don't think of things as stopping in 1911. I'm not particularly focused on enumerators' books. My practical involvement in 2011 is I'm on the ONS Academic Advisory Panel for the 2011 census, so I actually got to discuss the questions before they got asked. My practical involvement in 1801 is I'm still struggling to map it, and I'll be talking a bit about some of the problems. If you came to a meeting of that advisory panel, you'd discover that a surprise... I mean, it's a panel entirely of academics, uh, as you'd expect, but you'd also discover it's mostly a panel of geographers, not of sociologists, not of economists, not of historians, uh, but of geographers. And particularly today, the census is, is an essentially geographical survey whose main purpose has become the fact that it does provide great geographical detail. Uh, it, is the, these, it used to be, it was really the only survey the government carried out of the country. But today, it's, there are many other surveys. What's odd about the census is it covers everywhere. And it provides information for local authorities. And that means that the census is concerned with intense geographical detail. And that caused lots of problems for the census officials. And this comes from the 1881 census introduction to the report, but you'll find very similar comments on other censuses. The problem with boundaries. How do you report on parishes and districts and counties if there's no clear record of what they are? And you'll find moans like this again and again, that the government expected the census officials, to report on these units but hadn't really created any clear record of what they are or were. And as it says here, that each time the government did this, they didn't build sufficiently on what had gone before. They dreamt up something completely new, completely new lines on the map. I mean, all of this is simply what it says in the census report. The boundaries of ecclesiastical parishes of municipal and parliamentary boroughs, of urban and rural sanitary districts, overlap and intersect each other with such complexity that the enumerators and the registrars, in a vast number of cases, failed altogether to unravel their intricacy. So this is not about you making a census of the census, geographical sense of the census, or me making a geographical sense of it. The census officials themselves had a very large problem making geographical sense of what they were trying to do. It's unsurprising they had such problem because, as it says there, no official or authoritative statement of the exact boundary of an area was procurable. There was just no clear record. And this is not going back into the mists of time. This is 1881, remember. And that was particularly true of ecclesiastical districts, the boundaries which were found to be very often very uncertain and subject to dispute between neighbouring incumbents. And so they set to work... This took up a lot of time. We laboriously investigated the evidence set before us and finally adopted that conclusion which seemed most warrantable. 
This is not probably giving you vast confidence, this kind of language. These difficulties must of necessity have presented themselves to the compilers of former censuses, but the difficulties increase each census with the formation of new areas. And a particular problem in 1881 was the creation of the new system of sanitary districts, which laid the foundation for the local government system that came in in 1894. The rural sanitary districts were more or less the same thing as registration districts, more or less because they were actually more closely based on poor law unions, which weren't quite the same thing as registration districts. Urban sanitary districts, which were components within the rural districts, um, had been very frequently defined without any apparent regard to other administrative areas. And that added very materially to the toil of our work, because note that the sanitary districts were, the, in some senses, the most important reporting unit in 1881. Although the, sanit- the census officials wished that sanitary districts had been closely based on older boundaries, the obvious problem is they were basically about putting sewage pipes in. And there are unavoidable practical reasons why those probably f- needed a different geography from anything going before. Uh, they then give a number of examples, and I'm just quoting three here. The urban sanitary district of Mosley in the Saddleworth area, uh, which is some of you will know, Uh, historically was in the West Riding of Yorkshire, despite being on the west side of the Pennines. That urban sanitary district comprised parts of four registration subdistricts, parts of four parishes, parts of two poor law unions, and parts of three counties. That's ancient counties, but only parts of two registration counties, namely Lancashire and Yorkshire. Uh, The municipal city of York, which together with the Ainsty is included for parliamentary purposes in the North Riding, is included for registration purposes in the East Riding, and for all other purposes in the West Riding. (laughs) While the parliamentary city of York... Note these are not two different... Sorry, different cities in different parts of the country. These are different definitions of the city of York. Um, The parliamentary city extends beyond the municipal city and is partly in the north and partly in the east riding. Uh, The parliamentary borough of Stoke-upon-Trent consists of parts of six civil parishes and parts of four unions and contains four municipal boroughs. This is a mess. It is hard to make sense of it. And that's what my project has tried to do. That's, again, again from the 1881 report, a complete listing of all the areas for which they published statistics, totalling 38,720. You'll notice that the most numerous category, just under 15,000, are civil parishes. And 1881 is the first census for which we can really talk about a clear civil parish system. Prior to that, it's again an utter mess. Ecclesiastical parishes, I mean, some of them... Uh, are equivalent to the civil parishes, but it turns out they get involved with another 15,000 units through the need to include some statistics for ecclesiastical parishes. You have seven Sank ports and ancient towns, uh, plus 23 further members of Sank ports and ancient towns. You have 750 petty and special session divisions, not necessarily of great interest to the study of genealogy, but if, for example, you're analysing small debt statistics from the 19th century or records of small debt claims, uh, those are important units, and so on and so forth. One aspect of what my project has done is we have, in fact, created some kind of record of most of the units on this, on this slide. Our system in total identifies just under 80,000 units, although we have not attempted to create boundaries for all of these. 
the main thing we've done nothing from on that list is, in fact, the petty session divisions. We've never been able to deal with them. That, of course, everything I've said so far has been taken from the 1881 report. Oddly enough, a date at which things are... I mean, although they thought it was getting steadily worse, you can argue things were getting better around that time. But, of course, there are broader changes. And in terms of the main reporting units used by the different censuses, and those are the things that we've tried to map the boundaries of, uh, we have these... Between 1801 and 1841, the census was organised around the uh, long-standing traditional geography of ancient counties, uh, hundreds, wards, wapentakes, etc., then the ancient parishes. Or the ancient parishes are a lot more complicated than that first appears. And a fundamental problem is this whole geography is essentially a common law geography. It's not been defined by somebody in London drawing lines on a map. It's something which has been passed down over a very long period. And there is a definite issue about, well, what exactly is an ancient parish versus a chapelry? From 1841, and particularly from 1851 onwards, we have the registration geography, which I suspect most of you are primarily familiar with in terms of census reporting geographies. That's a geography uh, consisting of the basic building block being the registration districts, which were more or less the same thing as poor law unions. Registration districts divided into registration sub-districts, uh, arguably interesting units which have been relatively little used and so far which my project hasn't mapped, aggregated up into registration counties. It's important to note that registration counties didn't really have any function. They were simply aggregates of districts for reporting purposes. And then, finally, from the 1911 census onwards, we have local government units. At the top, this is essentially a geography defined in 1894 by the Local Government Act of that year, but not used systematically by the census for, until 1911. Uh, and the 1911 census uses both registration units and administrative units. Um, administrative counties a rather complex patchwork of local government districts. In most of the country, the main units being urban and rural districts, municipal boroughs and county boroughs. Uh, London containing London boroughs, sorry, metropolitan boroughs, and also the City of London with a unique status. At the bottom tier, civil parishes, but increasingly wards becoming important. Uh, after 1911, we get, in fact, two or three quite significant further changes. The least known of these are the county reviews of the 1930s. This is not a matter of a single change to the legal structure, but rather a very systematic revision of individual units. And I'll come back to that at the end. But in fact, the scale of changes in the 1930s is actually very large. It's, but you won't, if you just look at the history of local government legislation, you'd be unaware of it. Then, in 1974-76, we have the Redcliffe-Maud reforms. And one of the problems is you will encounter people who think there was a single standard historical geography up to 1974. Have, have any of you come across the website of the Association of British Counties? Um, that, that's a website devoted to the principle that they were sort of, we ought to go back to the historical counties. But you constantly find people who seem to think that prior to 1974, 
the counties that existed then had existed since time immemorial. When in fact we have, when, when looking at the previous 200 years of the census, we have to concern ourselves with three very different geographies. And I'll be talking more about that later. Uh, further small changes in 1996 to the local government geography, but I suspect nobody here is particularly interested in that. Just to give you some idea of why this matters, um, this is about Cambridgeshire. And particularly, if you look at the 1911 census report, you'll discover that, I mean, a general point about the list of registration counties and the list of administrative counties is they look fairly similar. You'll notice that Yorkshire is divided into three administrative counties based on the ridings. If you look a bit more carefully, you'll find that Lincolnshire is also in three bits. But Cambridgeshire looks fairly safe. But when you actually find out what the boundaries were of different definitions of Cambridgeshire, the differences are, in fact, spectacular. The purple line shows the boundaries of the registration county. And as you can see, it's an area of over half a million acres and a population of over 200,000. The red line is the administrative county of Cambridgeshire, centred, obviously, on Cambridge down there. Um, and the blue line is the ancient county, or at least one reasonable definition of the ancient county. And um, note that the modern county of Cambridgeshire, what now exists, is different again because it includes the whole of Huntingdonshire and Peterborough. Peterborough is an interesting place. Uh, historically, it's sort of in Northamptonshire, sort of in its own strange little unit called the Soak of Peterborough. Uh, today it's treated as part of Cambridgeshire. Uh, notice that although in general terms the administrative county is smaller than the registration county, down here we have a substantial part of what's um, uh, part of the registration county of Hertfordshire included in the, um, in the administrative county and um, all things get very complicated around Newmarket. The issue of whether Newmarket should be in Cambridgeshire or should be in Suffolk is, I, think, I gather, still controversial. And so all of this leads through... I mean, this is what I think of as the results of the census. Not enumerators books, but parish-level tables in the reports. This is the 1801 report. Um, as you can see, it's all a bit simple. We do have... Notice what this column is headed. Parish, township, or extra-parochial place. So it's not simply a list of parishes. And this column tries to tell us what they are. It's divided up into hundreds, or hundreds, etc. This is the beginning of the table for Surrey. So, in 1831, things get a bit better organised. The hundreds are divided up into divisions... We also, down there, you can see that we have included in Brixton 100 is part of the parish of Battersea, but it's the part called Penge. Penge is listed simply as a hamlet. So we have here the census reporting zone, which isn't actually a legally defined unit. It's a, it's a hamlet. In 1851, things have changed fairly drastically. We, although note we're still dealing with somewhat vague lowest level units. It's not about parishes, it's about parishes, townships and places. Registration county, registration district, registration sub-district. 
And again over here, we have got a type column so that we have Oxshot being included as a hamlet. And jumping to 1931, again, a different geography. It's about local government districts. Um, one of the peculiarities is that county boroughs, strictly speaking, were not part of the administrative county. They uh, had full powers in their own right, but, but the census tends to treat them as being associated with a particular administrative county. Uh, so we have county borough um, and the administrative county, and um, yes, in fact, in Surrey there was only one county borough, which was Croydon. Uh, totally municipal boroughs and urban districts. And so one of the complications here is that county, county boroughs, municipal boroughs and urban districts are all basically towns, but with descending degrees of independence from the county, and they change their status over time. And we also, in fact, within the towns, have a division into wards. Note that these tables do not tell you where anything is, but they do provide you with a lot of information about hierarchical relationships. And one of the basic constraints on my project, trying to make sense of the geography of censuses, is that mapping the historic boundaries is somewhere between time-consuming and expensive and simply impossible because there's no clear record. And one of our concerns was to try to provide a record of units, even if we couldn't define their boundaries. And if we can't define their boundaries... We can define them, obviously, in terms of their names, provide a systematic listing, and we can also define them in terms of their hierarchical relationships, what, di what district is a parish part of, what hamlet is a par parish part of. A lot of the funding for what I'm going to be demonstrating in a couple of minutes came from the National Lottery, uh, but it came with support of the archive sector, and a lot of what we were trying to do... But um, this is a set of rules produced by the National Council and Archives for defining place names. Well, in fact, the, the report as a whole is about providing master lists of people's names and corporate bodies, but also geographical names. And this is basically to support indexing. One problem with cataloguing archival material is most of it... I mean, archives are peculiar because they do try to provide a cataloguing by, lo by location, by place... They try to provide place name indexes. The issue is what names do you put in? Do you put the names of streets in? Do you put the names that local people use for that particular settlement? Uh, many local archives have had the policy of trying to index by the name of the par parish containing a particular location. And for that, you need a systematic list of what parishes existed and also of how to spell their name. Do you call it Great Finsbury or Finsbury Magna? Because those are totally different places in the catalogue. The master source that these rules tell you to use for England is this book. This is Frederick Young's Guide to the Local Administrative Units of England. Have any of you seen this book? It's one of the most boring and incomprehensible books ever published. Um, uh, it is, um, I don't think I've got time to go into it, it's mind-boggling complexity. The footnotes have footnotes. Um, incredible things have been done to abbreviate this, and it's still two very fat books. Um, and it's a listing of units, and it's a listing of their relationships with other units. 
In particular, for parishes, it tells you which local government district they're in, which poor law union they're in, which sanitary district they're in, which parliamentary constituency they're in. So this is a book containing the names of units, when they existed, and what their hierarchical relationships were with other units. And, in fact, that is the core of the database we built. Uh, we employed... Um, we spent a couple of years, really, manually typing in not all the information from this book, sadly, but a lot of it, and hopefully creating something which was a bit more accessible. <coughs> and um, I realise that doesn't show up very clearly. I think I'm going to have to simply get this thing professionally redrawn by hand by somebody. What this tries to get across is the actual structure of the system we've built. That um, here we have... Um, there's actually higher-level units above nations in this system. Um, but I mean, England is a nation, Wales is a nation, Scotland's a nation. And then um, here we, for example, have Porlaw County, uh, Stroke Registration County. Here we have Administrative County. And then below the Porlaw, we have the Porlaw Union Stroke Registration District, Registration Subdistricts. Um, down here, we have what we call parish-level unit because to try to keep track of things, we um, define parish-level units and then they can, that includes ancient parishes, civil parishes, chapelries, townships, uh, hamlets we've been forced to add under some circumstances for reasons you've already seen. So we have a database which holds lots and lots of different kinds of administrative units. And they're all given a type. Many of them are given more detailed status information about them being an urban district, a municipal borough. And you can search all of that. You can tra trace the hierarchical relationships. And for some of them, we also know the boundaries. Doing censuses is hard. I'm not talking about what you do with them, but I'm talking actually conducting a census. Um, you're trying, and it's particularly hard if you've got no professional staff and the country hasn't been mapped. You know, you're John Rickman. You're sitting there in London. You're trying to count the population of Britain. How hard, there's no map of the country. The only thing you, about the only thing you can do is send letters to, to the local vicars. I mean, it's remarkable what he did. Things do get better. Once the new poor law comes in in the 1830s, there's a better network of local officials. The problems of relying on traditional geography was that in 1801, this was not a country which had been staying the same. This was a country experiencing very rapid change. 1801 is the middle of what we normally call the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution had created quite new settlements, areas that had been simply bits of moorland and which had never been actually assigned to a parish, they were extra-parochial moorland areas, suddenly had significant populations on them. The census, I've already just noted that census officials didn't control what boundaries existed or what boundaries they had to report on. They also were not the mapping agency. The Ordnance Survey did in fact go back before the census. They started ten years earlier. I mean, note that if you go into the institutional history, both of these innovations are about the war with the French. But the problem is that when the Ordnance Survey started mapping the country, they did not map boundaries. 
for the first 50 years, they simply map topography. And note that's a fundamentally different task. You can't actually go out with a theodolite and see a boundary. You can maybe see landmarks a boundary follows, but you can't see the boundary. It was only in 1841 with the Survey Act um, and uh, that they acquired the power to map boundaries, and only in 1849 they actually set up a boundary department and started doing it. And that task was only completed in the 1880s. Prior to the... I mean, they were mapping the country from south to north. They only completed the basic survey of the country in the 1880s in the north of Scotland, and they only completed mapping boundaries for a larger area in the 1880s. So that for all of those earlier censuses, there is no consistent record of what boundaries existed. Uh, And given that the boundaries were changing a lot in this period, it also means we cannot treat what eventually emerged as a record of those earlier boundaries. Now let's look at some maps. Oh, sorry. Firstly, um, we've computerised the 1851 parish table, including most of the footnotes to that table. And if you poke around in the footnotes to that table, you start finding things like this. In 1851, in fact, as you saw when I showed it, they included statistics going back to 1801. They did a major collation job on those earlier censuses. And the assumption is they had access to information which we no longer have from those earlier censuses. And you start finding these things. Uh, The hamlet of Penge, which I've already mentioned, uh, which is detached from the rest of the parish uh, of Battersea and is in Croydon District, was not separately returned in 1801 and 1811. Its population is probably included in Battersea Parish. They weren't sure. And then there are places that are simply not included. Um, One hour I've made is that those ones in green at top right there in Suffolk, not Sussex. Um, typo late last night. Uh, but a whole bu- bunch of parishes in the area south of Ipswich were just not covered by the 1801 census. Um, Ellen in Kent, uh, Bremill and Wiltshire. Were they missed completely, or were they in fact included in some adjacent parish? The first good maps, we've systematic maps we've got of boundaries, are not, in fact, from the Ordnance Survey. They're from the Parliamentary Boundary Commission of 1832. They had a very, very important task indeed. This followed the first Reform Act, the creation, arguably, of the first truly democratic politics in this country, which required getting rid of the old system of rotten boroughs and drawing up a new set of boundaries uh, for parliamentary constituencies. And they actually commissioned a lot of new survey work for the Boundary Commission report, And, I mean, almost all the maps I'm about to show you are part of our website. And here we have uh, their map of Guildford, for example. As you can see, it shows a number of distinct boundary lines relating to the parish and different definitions of the borough. Here we have their map of London, um, again showing the... um, I mean, this is a map of constituencies, but um, therefore not all that relevant to analysing census data. But it's a very nice... Um, map with some fairly clear boundary lines and you can see what features they're following. However, the 1832 reports maps of counties are far more problematic. They're sort of pretty blobby. <laughs> this is a map that we found in a skip at St Catherine's house when ONS were moving out of it. 
Um, it's now in the Royal Geographical Society collection. We don't know the detailed provenance, but it seems to be part of the census records over a long period. And it's um, a map which we think was created in the 1840s. The base map is an Ordnance Survey one-inch map. But somebody by hand has drawn onto it the boundaries of parishes and of poor law unions. It doesn't seem to be all that precise, but it does seem to be about the earliest map produced by census officials for, um, to provide a geographical framework. And that's obviously the area around Kew. These maps we know a bit more about. They were produced for the 1881 census. There's correspondence between the Register General and the Ordnance Survey. So these were created by the Ordnance Survey. Remember the date. The Ordnance Survey hadn't quite finished, weren't quite ready to publish, but they were in a position to produce very extensive maps. And for 1881, these maps in, over there in RG18 do show the boundaries of parishes of registration districts, and quite uniquely, they show the boundaries of registration sub-districts. Um, and we're hoping to digitise these at some point. Um, but this is the registration district of Northwich, uh, you can see all these small parish boundary lines, but these pink lines are the boundaries of the registration sub-districts. And those have been scanned by Cassini Publishing. Although I think they've not... I'm not clear if they've actually put them on the market. I've sort of got contacts, which is how I've got hold of it, but I'm not sure if they're actually purchasable from the Cassini site. That is the Ordnance Survey's first actual published map of boundaries. These are the 1888 sanitary district diagrams. So remember that census official was writing in the, after 1881, but before these were published. And these show uh, parish boundaries, sanitary districts. Um, you think you can see there that Croydon is a municipal borough and gets that sort of pink colour. This is before the 1894 Local Government Act. These maps are published at four inches to the mile scale, and I think you can see they're a bit sketchy. Um, we occasionally get complaints that we haven't accurately got whether somebody's house is in the right side of a boundary line. But if you're working from maps like this, to be honest, it's hard to be that precise. And then once you get to 1900, roughly every 10 years, the Ordnance Survey is producing uh, a new edition of these county administrative diagrams. So this is one from the 1930s. Um, and um, this is the whole sheet, so we're actually looking... I mean, it's not as big as it's actually on the wall, but it's probably about a quarter of that size. So this is a big sheet you're seeing now, not just a detail. And um, you have the urban districts, you have, I think, the municipal boroughs, you have the county borough of Croydon up there, and um, a great deal of... Once you get to 1900 or a bit later... Uh, it, creating a systematic map of census boundaries is still pretty time-consuming and expensive, but it's a fairly straightforward exercise. The other source are information on boundary changes. Um, again, these are not the most exciting parts of census reports, but you will in fact find that census reports do contain a great deal of information on boundary changes, such as is listed here. And the... This Divided Parishes Act of 1876 really is the first point where there is a systematic record of boundary changes. Prior to that, there's no clear record. But to be honest, there's also no clear process of change. There's nobody in, gov in sort of central government keeping a record of these things. Um, in the middle of the 19th century, the, the legal status of the parish is really quite... I mean, they're still basically ecclesiastical units, although being used for more and more non-ecclesiastical non, non functions. They're sort of being changed quite a lot, but um, 
And, I mean, Richard Oliver, who's probably the greatest sort of current expert on early mapping, has the view that, I mean, they couldn't really systematically revise parish boundaries until there was a systematic record of them. But certainly, for any date prior to the 18, sort of this sort of date, things are pretty murky, and you've seen some of the consequences. Uh, here we have a frequency distribution of parish boundary changes over time. Uh, this is, I mean, as you can see, it runs up to 1,600 changes in a single year. Uh, this is taken straight off our database, and, um, well, what's going on here? As you can see... <laughs> I mean, firstly, we don't really have clear data back here. This is around 1880. You can see, again, remember, the census official is complaining. He's trying to produce reliable statistics when everything's changing. That's sort of the consequences of the 1894 Local Government Act. And this, I already mentioned, the county reviews of the early 1930s. Big, big burst of changes, lots of things going on. And that's it for the problem and for the sources we've used in building our system. What I now want to do is demonstrate the actual system. I'm now going to be... This is now an audience participation exercise. And I'm going to live slightly dangerously, which may not work, but let's see. Um, could somebody... I have planted absolutely nobody in this audience. <laughs> uh, could somebody suggest someone they're interested in? Uh, you. you. Where we are now. Nah, people will think that was planted. Ashby de la all right, let's see what we can say about Ashby de Luzouche. Yeah, um, right, well, sadly, de Luzouche, we do not beat out Wikipedia. Right, um, one of the reasons we get quite a lot of traffic is what you've just seen, that we, uh, most places, if you type what I've just typed in, you will end up, we will end up in the, sort of the first five hits in Google. Um, that is actually a design feature of the site. It worries me an awful lot of sites, but it never seems to actually worry whether they're that findable. But we put a lot of effort into being findable on Google. Um, but, well, let's just pop back to our own homepage. Um, um, a few, <coughs> couple of things to emphasise. One is that um, we went, although you'll notice there are a lot of other options here, um, historical maps, census reports, travel writing... We went to, we've gone to a lot of effort to try to make everything accessible by place. So unless you're wanting to explore those resources in some way different from finding out about a particular place, ignore those other options. If you want place-based information, whether it's census data, old maps, travel writing, whatever it is, you um, should type a place name or a postcode into that box the only real exception to that is that from historic, there is actually another way in to information about places from the historical maps. Come back to that. <coughs> um, so we do a search on Ashby de la Zouche. Actually, I'm slightly surprised that didn't work. Because um, normally... Right. Now, one point I've already made is there are lots of administrative units, including administrative units with very similar names. And one of the things we do now is distinguish very clearly between administrative units and places. And at the moment, we're at a page which is about Ashby de la Zouche as a place, as a settlement. And we show you where it is with this map. Um, you'll notice it says, click on the map for other historical maps of this place. So this is an aspect of 
what I've already said, that if you want to see maps of Ashbed al-Azouche, don't go into our map library, because then you'll have to do a lot of zooming in. Type Ashbed al-Azouche into the home page, and you can go straight to maps that show Ashbed al-Azouche. Um, we have down here a bit of information. Well, we have this, this text from a historical gazetteer. Um, so that's the entry from John Bartholomew's gazetteer um, from 1887. Uh, if we click on this link called Historical Writing, we find, well, firstly, we have another entry from something called the Imperial Gazetteer, which, as you can see, is quite a lot longer. And uh, Ashby de Lazouche, a town, a parish, a subdistrict, and a district. That makes the point about Ashby de Lazouche as the place very clear. At this particular date, never mind the units that existed before, earlier and later, just at this date, there was a parish of Ashby de Lazouche a, a registration subdistrict and registration district. Same name, same basic settlement they're centred on, but different boundaries. And then down here, we have five links to travel writing, three of which are actually to William Camden, and you, my guess is that what, whatever William Camden has to say about Ashby de la Zouche in his chapters on Dorset and Somerset... It's probably not the main place to look. Um, but we also have references from Arthur Young and Charles Wesley. Slightly surprised. That indicates that Daniel Defoe said nothing at all about Ashby de la Zouche, which slightly surprises me. But anyway, um, let's see what William Camden has to say. Right, note, note one thing. We've not jumped to the top of a web page. We've jumped somewhere in the middle of it. We've jumped to the first reference to Ashby de la Zouche, in fact. Yeah, well, this is him actually writing about Leicester at the moment. Oh, Ashby. Oh, yes, no, no. no that, that's why it's gone to this point. Right, okay. But he's actually... This is a limitation of travel writing to some extent of the way we've built the system. That It is a reference to Ashby de la Zouche, but it's in the middle of him basically talking about Leicester. And you probably need to scroll down a bit to find somewhere down there. You can see that the place names in this are hyperlinks. Oh, well, I don't think I've really got... Anyway, um... What we have in the system is, if we go to... Um, we have got now, I think, most of the main historical travel writers, uh, apart from a few modern ones we can't include for copyright reasons. That in particular means we've got a lot of 18th century material. This is a genre which really... Pre I mean, this is... There's actually remarkably little statistical data from the 18th century, but it is the sort of the high watermark of this kind of journeys around, around Britain. And we've got now most of the main texts, and they're all indexed in this way. You can go to the place pages and then jump straight into the text of the travel writers for them. Right, so let's now have a look at the historical maps. So we just click on the map. Now, in fact, I have a problem. Um, I had hoped to show you the new... This is the ver this, our site's about to change in the next month or so. Uh, I had hoped to show you the new version, but it turns out security systems at the National Archives won't let me show you that. So I'm having to show you the old system. And I'm a kind of aware that it is not entirely intuitive. Um, and um, I have arguments with the programmer who developed it because he thinks it's utterly obvious what it does. Um, and the new version at least contains some explanatory text. Right, now up here we're looking at a map centred on Ashby de la Zouche. It's, in fact, very similar. It's not the same map, but it's showing a very similar area to the map you saw on the Ashby de la Zouche place page. If you can make it bigger by doing that, and 
you can zoom in and you start to see a... This works, I mean, if you look at the way this works, if you're used to using Google Maps, it works fairly similarly. You can sort of double-click on a bit of the map and zoom in. You can pan, if you hold the mouse down. But this is, this is what you're looking at at the moment is an Ordnance Survey New Popular map from the late 1940s. Uh, if we go up here, you have access to... Th well, you can see Open Street Map, which is just sort of modern mapping. Um, we have the Land Utilisation Survey of Great Britain maps, which are from the 1930s um, and are of, of, of slightly specialised interest, but do give you a different sense of place. And we have the 19th century first series maps. Now, I'm con I've always... I mean, I'm conscious these are a bit variable. The problem is they were... These images were created for us by the British Library, and they weren't willing to use a a conventional scanner on them for conservation reasons. They used a very large camera. And unfortunately, the results of that are a bit variable. And some of them are not too hot. But this is only part of what the map library does. Down below, down below, the system is giving you access to the... the these maps up here have had quite a lot done to them. We've taken, we've taken, we first we've scanned them, but after we scanned them, we took away all the margins, so all the margins gone, and then we assemble them into a single big mosaic. So we're effectively creating a map, a single sheet, at one inch to the mile scale of the whole of Great Britain. In fact, you'll find that some of these maps cover the whole of Europe. Now, we've also, to make that possible, had to reproject the maps. That's why you'll notice that the grid lines are not quite straight. They're on a slant because the maps have all been reprojected. Uh, that enables us to provide this seamless map which can be used in all sorts of quite interesting ways, including pulling them in to those place pages. But there are obviously downsides to removing, for example, all the margins. There's no key on this big map. Uh, you don't know any of the publication details. So we also provide you with access to the original historical maps. Uh, scanned, but with nothing else done to them. And they're down here. And the, what really needs to be explained and will be explained in the new version of the system is that as you change this map, you're actually searching for maps in the collection of individual sheets. So that... Um, at the moment, down here, it's showing various topographic maps of the covering Ashby de la Zouche. So um, here, for example, is a revised new series map of 1903, and it opens in a different window. And as you can see, you've got the complete margin there, and you can zoom in quite a long way. Sorry, it just is a lot of traffic for the network. So those are the topographic maps. As you move sideways, if we now scroll down, you have a different set of maps. So by, by simply zooming and panning around this map, I search for, for map sheets. Further, and this is perhaps the most important point, these tabs up here control what kind of maps you get to see. Not here, that's controlled by that. It's contro it controls what maps show up here. So if I shift to boundary maps, I'm now looking at administrative boundary maps. I'm not going to zoom in on those because you've already seen samples of them. They were the maps I was showing earlier. But all of those, if you... Our system contains a lot of boundary lines, and we use them to, for example, for the postcode-based searching. But they were 
They had to be digitised from the published maps. They cannot be more accurate than the published maps. And in practice, because they were hand-traced, there's bits of Jeddah and so on. The most accurate record of the historic boundary, map, historic boundary lines we've got are in these scan maps here. And um, the interface does let you look at them in considerable detail. The other thing to understand is that how much you zoom in affects what maps you see. So it's not just what maps cover the area, but, um, yep. So here we had to actually see the 1832 Royal Commission maps, for example, which are very detailed maps of the towns. You have to zoom in quite hard, which I've just done for Peterborough. And so there we have different definitions of the boundaries of the borough of Peterborough. So that's the map library. If we again go back to the place page for Ashby de la Zouche, well, let's look quickly at these two options. Place names, we've gathered together the different names that appear in census reports and also in our collections of writing. We keep them separate. Um, the administrative units can include all sorts of ecclesiastical parishes where the name's got a sort of it's somebody... Yes, I mean, here, for example, Ashby de la Zouche, Holy Trinity. I'm slightly surprised we haven't got Zouche with an E on, but yeah. it seems to have been remarkably consistent. Um, the way we've done this is... This is not a good example, as it turns out, uh, for, the, for, na for naming. Uh, if we took somewhere in Wales... We've, we started off by computerising the Young's book you've seen. And we then tried to match... We've got computerised versions of pretty much all the census parish tables, the things you've seen images of. And we set about systematically matching those computerised versions. And the way we did the matching meant that if a name didn't match, we then went back to the original census report and so it checked whether it was correctly transcribed, and if it was an error, we obviously corrected it. We also went back to Young's and checked that we'd correctly typed out the name from Young's. And if it turned out we hadn't made a transcription error, we then added the name from the census report and recorded the census report as being the source of that additional name. And you'll find that for many parishes in Wales, we've got lots and lots of variant names. Almost one or two of them, not coming from Young's, but a book by a man called Melville Richards, which is about Wales, uh, but most of the names will come from the parish census tables, and most of them represent English census officials struggling to write down the names of Welsh parishes. So we've built up a lot of variant names, although in the case of Ashby de la Zouche, that's not actually, it turns out not to be an interesting example. We do provide, well, we've got links here to the Genuki site. We've got a link to the history of work, the workhouse site, which will only appear if it was a poor law union, and we've got a link to Wikipedia. We haven't got a link to the Victoria County history. I'm not quite clear why, because we do try to systematically link to the Victoria County history. Uh, those links only exist if we've done some work to create them. We also have to some links to sites which can provide you with some information for any coordinate. And we hold a coordinate for Ashby de la Zouche. These sites have information about coordinates, so we can take you to them for everywhere. But what I want to finish up by doing is obviously talk about the information we hold for administrative units. Now, these are the administrative units um, associated with Ashby de la Zouche. And I think the point will be... This is actually um, pretty much all... Yes, I mean, the point about names is obvious here, that virtually all of these are simply Ashby de la Zouche standard spelling uh, with absolutely no variant spellings. 
we have got two ecclesiastical parishes, Ashby de la Zouche and Ashby de la Zouche Holy Trinity, and that's the only complication in that respect. For some other places, you'll see it's a lot more complicated if we looked at Sautry, for example, in Huntingdonshire, uh, which was divided up into three ecclesiastical and ancient parishes. We treat Sautry as just one place, but with three associated parishes. Um, but we have um, the, the registration district and poor law union. One of the things we've tried to track quite carefully is the, difference between re- the differences between registration districts and poor law unions. Most of them are exactly the same, but, for example, Lewis in Sussex, the poor law unions and the registration districts have quite a complex different history. Salisbury and Alderbury and Wiltshire, things get complex. Um, we have the registration district and the urban... Sorry, we have the rural district and the urban district. We have a rather dodgy unit there called Ashby de la Zouche Labour Market. That's to enable the system to hold unemployment statistics, although, oddly, we don't seem to have any. Um, we have the sub-district of Ashby de la Zouche, either registration sub-district. We have an urban sanitary district and a rural sanitary district. You could see those as in practice... But almost the same thing as the urban and rural district, but legally they have a distinct existence. Uh, We have the two ecclesiastical parishes. We have the ancient parish, which becomes a civil parish. And we have statistical data. Um, Let's have a look at the ancient... And you can see we indicate the statistical themes available. So this is is where things may get embarrassing. Um, Let's look at what data we have on population... We have total... Po- oh, not, this looks OK. Um, yep. There we have the total population of the parish of Aspie de la Zouche from 1801 to 1961. Uh, that's a graph. That's um, the actual statistics, and that tells you where it comes from. Uh, you'll notice that um, the first six, six years all come from the 1851 report because we were making use of the fact it did this collation job. My own view now is probably the 1851 census is a better guide to the actual populations than the earlier reports because they did do that collation work. Um, you, Looking at the chart, you will realise that um, you hadn't been aware of the impact of the Black Death in Ashby de la Zouche in the uh, 1890s. Um, I think, I hope, this will be explained by this tab. Oh, this, actually, this is quite a good one. Right, this is our page for the parish, the civil, ancient stroke civil. Incidentally, I am quite clear that ancient parishes become ecclesiastical parishes, not civil parishes. But our concern was to provide this kind of continuity in population statistics. And for that purpose, we need to treat the ancient parishes leading to the civil and keep the ecclesiastical parish separate. We cannot treat ecclesiastical parishes and civil parishes as identical because... After the mid-19th century, their boundaries evolved separately. And one of our basic rules is one unit can only have one boundary at a time. Um, but here we have information on the, um, the units that the parish of Ashby de la Zouche was part of. You'll notice that a lot of them are um, also called Ashby de la Zouche, but they're different units. It also includes Ashby Wolds. You might say, well, that's a, that's a different place. Yes, but the parish covered a larger area, and therefore it covered part of the settlement of Ashby Wolds, which was a separate sanitary district. Here we have a list of boundary changes. You'll see these are coming in from the census reports, and I would guess that a great deal of that 
catastrophic drop in population is the result of Ashby Wolds being created a separate parish in 1894, which is pretty clearly a result of the 1894 Local Government Act. Um, and then going on, you can see it being affected again by the, um, uh, the boundary, the county reviews in the mid-1930s. Leicestershire was cleared in 1936. And then down here, we have two units, which both actually listed by Young's uh, Blackford B, B, which became a civil parish but was previously a township within Ashby de la Zouche and Donisthorpe, the boundary maps. This is something where this is not exactly the best part of the system, and we are at least making the map a bit bigger in the new version, but I can't demonstrate that. Um, th this is, these are the boundaries of the parish of Ashby de la Zouche, there are two boundary lines there because we've, we've got both the boundary line researched by Kane and Oliver um, and the boundary line we researched ourselves. We're actually removing the Kane and Oliver boundaries. But here you can see the boundary lines. We haven't, at the moment, you cannot access the date information on those boundaries. But the reason there are multiple boundaries there is because they changed. Uh, if we look at the um, Poor Law Union, Stroke Registration District, um, you. I mean, one general point is the range of data available for parishes is quite limited. Uh, and if you looked at those parish tables I showed earlier, they're not all that much beyond population headcounts, with the exception of 1831. Um, but to, to find out more about the district, you really need to look at some higher-level unit like the Poor Law Union. One of the things we have here is the transcription of the Registry General's Decennial Supplements created by Robert Woods, uh, all, all the pretty much all the statistics and Registry General's decennial supplements from 1851 to 1911 are in this system. And you can actually... Now, um, this is... There's a problem. They changed the classification. So um, the, that's our attempt to show you a single graph covering the whole period from 1871 to 1911. Unfortunately, you can see half of all deaths are simply other... Um, and unfortunately, that's not, um, regrettably, that's the best you can really do if you're trying to standardise across the big changes in cause of death classifications. If we go back and look at a particular decade, it, right, that's our attempt to, right, so this is, here you have the detailed causes of death, and here we have um, the actual statistics, which may be better. So this is the data for males, uh, it's divided up by age and then cause of death. Down below, we have the data for females. So all of that's in the system. It is a system, to be honest, you need to poke around at it. It's, and, but as I said, the most important thing to realise is that although there are these other ways of accessing census data and so on, that basically you should just say where you're interested in, get to the place page, and then from the place page, poke around could somebody else suggest somewhere else a bit smaller than Ashby de la Zouche, just to finish off? Oh, actually, we're out of time, are we? Okay, no, I better... Sorry. Um, I think it's... I'm sorry, we've now got to 11 o'clock, and I think I've got to stop. Um, I'll be staying around till lunch, so if anyone's got any questions... Well, actually, do we have a moment for questions? Right, questions. Because although we've been interacting, you haven't really had a chance... Uh, we have a, well, firstly, it's a way we try to make money. Um, we, have a, we have a problem keeping this website running. 
Um, we were originally, we, we were funded for three years by the British Library, but that, that three-year period actually ended in 2007. Uh, to keep this site running, to pay the running costs of the website, we have to make a bit of money. And um, to be honest, I don't really understand Ancestral Atlas, other than the fact that if you sign up for them, uh, we get five quid. Um, You're a brand salesman, aren't you? Well, I, I personally think their value proposition is slightly unclear, but it's, it's a kind of social networking site, which is trying to get people um, together not based on the fact they share an ancestor, but they share a location where their ancestors live. That's the basic idea of Ancestral Atlas. So that if you declare an interest, you can find out more about that place and somehow or other make contact with other people who are interested in that place from a family history perspective. Um, but beyond that, you'll have to contact Ancestral Atlas. Are the maps themselves copyrighted? Have you disabled right-click, for instance? Um, the... I've got to word this slightly carefully. Um, the, well, firstly, the maps, um, the majority of the maps in the system are out of copyright. The exception to that are the maps of the Land Utilisation Survey. Uh, they're, they're, they were published, well, I could talk for an hour about the Land Utilisation Survey, but this isn't the place. But they were published by a company set up by the Academic Leather Projects in the 1930s. And they're because they were not published by the Ordnance Survey, they're still in copyright and will be for another 30 years. Um, we are also making, another way we make a bit of money um, is by licensing data for commercial use. So the data is in that sense not freely available. When you, one of the features of our new site is that it will in fact contain download facilities. Um, but those download facilities, which will allow you to actually download the full map images, will be restricted to academic users. And that is, that's, that, that, a lot of that is for, for copyright reasons. But I think anything you can do by cutting and pasting from the site, as long as it's not for commercial purpose, you're very welcome to do. Um, do you cover Scotland? Yes. So you've, you've got the details of where the Scottish boundaries have changed? Yes. I mean, our, our coverage of Scotland isn't as systematic as our coverage of England and Wales for various reasons. Uh, the mapping is pretty much the same. Uh, the, I mean, one problem actually is that the, I mean, most of what I've said does not apply to Scotland in detail. And the history of mapping, boundary mapping, the, there simply are fewer maps available. And they don't list boundary changes until 1920. I think 1931 may be the first census and listing boundary changes, which is a big problem. Uh, but in broad terms, yes, we cover Scotland. And we're always hoping to improve it. But... Any more? Okay, well, thank you very much for listening. Um, if you want to use the site, um, just searching for Vision of Britain in Google or Get You There. And as you've seen, you can even search for the history of particular places in Google without mentioning us, and you're quite likely to find us. But certainly any search provision of Britain and Google, or, um, or Bing, I imagine, uh, will get you there. Right, thank you. This event was recorded on the 1st of October 2011 as part of the Celebrating the Census Conference at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.